Well, good morning, friends. We'll, uh, we'll get started here. Welcome. Come on in. Find a seat. We're glad you've uh, chosen to join us once again to worship together. So as we get started, as we uh, grab a seat here, let's uh, take a few moments and just uh, bow our heads in just silent prayer to prepare our hearts for worship. So please bow and pray with me. Psalmist writes, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So Father, as we worship you this morning, help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to to take all of our our needs, all of our uh, struggles, all of our uh, sins, and all the ways we've fallen short, all of our weaknesses, help us to to take that to your infinite gracious supply, to know that you nourish us, you sustain us, you give us all we could ever need, all abundantly more than we could ever ask for or imagine in Christ. So show us your goodness anew this morning and help us to go and share it with others. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Men, please stand and sing with us.
to make you aware of. Uh, just uh, You'll see some of these in your, your bulletin, some of them on our website, waymouthchurch.com. I'll just uh, go through these briefly here this morning as we continue on in worship. But uh, this morning after our worship service, we will be having a VBS meeting. So if you are, are planning on serving, volunteering with our Vacation Bible School this summer, or if you would like to learn more about how to sign up to help, how to volunteer with that, we'll be having uh, a meeting right after the service uh, in the, the big adult Sunday school room uh, down in the, the classroom hallway. So we'll be there. We'll talk about VBS. We're excited for what God has in store for us this June uh, with Vacation Bible School. Uh, also, this coming Friday, uh, yeah, right, April 16th, uh, we have our, our Weymouth students all-nighter. So that'll be a time from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Our students will be here uh, eating pizza, playing games, shooting nerf guns at each other. Uh, and then also doing some different devotionals and Bible study and worship and things like that. So uh, we just want to say that if your student is planning to come to that but is not yet registered uh, online in the Church Center app, we just ask that uh, you could do that for us because it helps us just to know the numbers to prepare for with food and things like that. So you can sign up for that up until 7 o'clock Friday night, uh, but that's going to be a good time. It's going to be a fun time uh, this Friday with the students. Uh, also this Friday and coming Sunday, uh, we have a, a group from our church who are going to be going out to the square. This weekend is the, the Medina Ice Festival, and so there's a group of us that are going to be going out to talk to people on the square, try and 
uh, get into some gospel conversations. Uh, so the group will be meeting at Debbie Mason's house at 6.30 on Friday, and then on Sunday they'll, they'll gather, connect after the service to decide where to meet or when to go over. So if you're interested in that, you can talk to David Hunter. David, you want to give us a nice little wave there? Yeah, you can go see David after the service. He's organizing that for us, so uh, that'll be a good time to engage and to evangelize uh, with our community. Another way we're seeking to, to serve and engage with our community is we are participating in a baby bottle fundraiser for Oaks uh, Family Care Center in Brunswick. And so you'll see on that back table there and then on the welcome table through those doors, there's some empty baby bottles. And so for the next two weeks, we invite you to take a, a bottle or a couple home and fill them up with loose change, cash, whatever you have lying around the house, and then uh, bring them back in two Sundays. So on February 28th, bring your baby bottles back. There'll be a basket on the welcome table you can put in there, and then we'll uh, give that over to, to Oaks Family Center. They're a, a crisis pregnancy center, a center that's seeking to, to care for, for, uh, for moms uh, in, in challenging situations, care for babies, try and encourage people to, to, to make choices for life uh, for their children, for their uh, unborn babies. So uh, that's a great ministry. We're excited to partner with them uh, in that. And then finally, uh, we're making a slight shift to our Wednesday night ministry. So on Wednesday nights, we have our Weymouth Family Nights. It's, we have Weymouth Kids. We have Weymouth Students. We have a tough text class uh, that meet from 6.30 to 8. We also typically have a prayer meeting that meets during that time. But what we've decided to do is to try, uh, so it's not competing with anything else, to try shifting that prayer meeting up to 6 o'clock. So if you, if you would like to come to that, we'll meet Wednesday nights at 6, from 6 to 6.30. We'll pray together, and then after that, you can, you're welcome to go to the Tough Text class, Weymouth Kids, Weymouth Students from 6.30 to 8. So Wednesday nights, we'll be here, two hours, 6 to 8. The first half hour, 6 to 6.30, we'll be praying together. And then from 6.30 to 8, we'll be in our different uh, classes and groups. So if you have any questions about that, you can talk to me. Uh, we can, we'd love to tell you more about what we have going on during the week on Wednesday nights. Uh, but in light of all of that, uh, please bow and pray with me. Well, Father, we thank you for this life together that we get to live as a church family, for the ways that we get to come to worship you, the ways we get to, to fellowship and encourage one another, the ways we get to serve together. So Lord, we, as we think about VBS or uh, the Oaks Family Care Center or uh, the All-Nighter or uh, this, this weekend in Medina, this chance to, to evangelize, to, to share our faith. Lord, we just ask that you'll continue uh, to open doors for us, to reach out to our community, to help us be a church family that's not just focused on what we do for each other here in this building, but also is focused on what we can do for, uh, for you, for our neighbors, for those who don't yet know you. Lord, so we just pray that you'll go before all these opportunities to evangelize, to serve, to raise money, to, uh, to fellowship together, to invite students and kids uh, into ministry on Wednesday nights and Friday during the all-nighter. We just pray that you'll work through all that, not just to uh, help, help us to have fun or to enjoy each other's company, Lord, but that you'll work through all that to, to bring people to saving faith in Christ, to, to grow people towards maturity in Christ, Lord, as we live out this community we have together as a church. May this community be a reflection of your beauty and your grace, your goodness to us. And so may more and more people be uh, interested in knowing where this community comes from, where the joy and the love that we share in Christ comes from, Lord, and help us to be able to go and reflect it and share it with others. So unite us in these things. Unite us uh, in Christ as, as we celebrate and rejoice and worship together. And unite us in this mission as we go out and serve in so many different ways. We thank you for all of our volunteers, all of our leaders, all of our uh, ministry team leaders, our elders, 
Lord, we thank you for the chance we have to worship and serve you together. Lord, we also ask that you help us as a church family to know how to care for those who, who are struggling, who are going through hardship. Lord, we particularly pray this morning for Vic and Connie Sanek and as they, they walk through these days with hospice and different, all the different challenges that that faces. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to help them have strength for each day and that you'll help us to come alongside them with your grace and your peace and your hope. Please strengthen them, encourage us, and strengthen and encourage us as we worship you and serve you together. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, now I want to invite the, the kids to come on up. We'll do our, our next uh, letter in the alphabet here. So if you want to come on up, have a seat. Oh, I see two, uh, two little ones right here. Come on up, come on. You're good. Ah! <laughs> you scared me on that one. All right, guys, come on up. So, are you guys pretty good in your alphabet? You know the alphabet pretty well at this point? Yes. Yeah, good. Who remembers what letter we're on? We are going through the alphabet, and each letter we are talking about a different attribute of God, a different part of God's character, who he is. Do you, anybody remember what the last letter we did was? It was a couple weeks C. ago. B, close. What comes after B? C. C, right, we did C. And this morning we are talking about the letter D, which is my other favorite letter. Do you know why? For your last name. For my last name. There you go. See. C for Chris, D for Durbin, love it, very self-centered. Um, but yeah, so we're talking about the letter D this morning, and what I want to say to you guys is that as we think about God, uh, we, we know from the Bible that God has dominion. God has ultimate dominion. Have you ever heard that word before, dominion? What do you think that word means? What about minions? Minions, it's kind of like minions, <laughs> but it's also uh, different from minions. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a minion is somebody who is dominated, I guess you could say. They are ruled over, right? Like in that movie, Gru, he's in charge. You could say Gru has dominion over the minions. Say that ten times fast, right? Um, but to have dominion, yeah, is to, is to rule over people. Think about a king, right? A king or a queen. They wear a crown. They sit on a throne. And that, that's all those things symbolize their rule, their dominion. Think about Gru in those movies. He is in charge of all these crazy little minions that give him a hard time and speak in a weird language that I don't understand, but somehow my daughters understand. I don't get it. Um, yeah, exactly. Right? So to have dominion is to have the ultimate rule, to be in charge, to be ruling over everything. And so when we read the Bible, we, we talk about God, and we see what God is, how he's revealed to us in Scripture, and, and the Scripture reveals to us that God isn't just our, our Father. He's not just our Savior in Christ. He's also our King, that God is the ruler over everything, even, even more than, you know, the, the earthly rulers that we have in our countries, even more than our teachers or our parents or our grandparents. God is the one who has ultimate authority. He is in charge of everything. And so that means when we have times when we're scared or when we have times where we see uh, crazy things happening in the world, uh, in the country we live, in other countries and other places, we can rest, we can remember that God is in control. Oh, hello. He is the ruler, that he has dominion, that essentially God is in charge, that we're not in charge. And that's part of the problem. And and what the Bible calls sin is that a lot of times what sin is is us trying to have dominion. It's us trying to be in charge, us trying to be the rulers of our own lives. But what the Bible shows us is that God is our ruler. And even though we try and rule our own lives, he sent Jesus to die for us, to pay for all the ways we try and sit on the throne, all of our sins. And then he raised him back to life to be our perfect king, our perfect Can ruler. I yeah. I have a minion that speaks in a minion language and sings... We wish you a Merry Christmas. That's, you have a minion? That's super awesome. Yeah. Uh, I want to see that sometime. You should bring it by. I want to see it. So, not right now. But, so. <laughs> you got something to say? 
Is it about minions? Yeah, I figured. We can talk about and that so, later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nana has a minion that can talk. Nana has a minion that can talk? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. She yeah, does. Yeah. That's that is cool. very cool. So next time, think about this. Next time you guys watch Despicable Me, next time you see those minions, think about that, that God is the one who has ultimate dominion, right? He is the ultimate ruler. Christ is our savior. Christ is our king. And we can trust him with whatever we're facing. And we can know that he is in charge. He is in control. And we are not. And that's really good news because God is good. He's a perfect king. He's a perfect ruler, right? So let's pray together to him now. Let's pray. Well, Father, we pray to you and we thank you that we can come before your throne, that because of Christ our Savior, we don't have to fear coming before you, coming before your authority and your dominion, but we can do so with confidence and with comfort and with hope. Lord, we praise you for how you have uh, been gracious to us, even though we try to have the dominion in our own lives, even though we try to sit on the throne ourselves. We thank you that you sent your Son to be our perfect Savior. Uh, you rose him from the dead to, to be our perfect King. Uh, so help us to submit to your rule, to trust in your saving grace, and to live lives as citizens in your kingdom, because you are the one who ultimately has all rule and all power and all authority and all dominion. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to go to Weymouth Kids now, so you guys can line up. I'm Mrs. Martin. Daddy, come. No, i got to stay here. Daddy. And the rest of us will stand and sing together. Daddy, you're my minion. I'm not your minion. Well, sometimes I am, but not today. <laughs> This is my 
And I uh, invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We're continuing on in our series here in 1 Peter. We'll come to the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 this morning. We've been going through this series in which Peter is writing to elect exiles. We've called this series just a a letter for exiles. And this morning we're looking at the idea of growing up in exile. There's a lot of exile going on, in case you haven't noticed so far in 1 Peter. Uh, But this morning we'll be looking at the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 22. And I'll read through to chapter 2, verse 3 for us. So follow along as I read, starting in 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, Lord, as this word is is preached to us now, as we see what you have for us through your word, by your spirit, make it clear. Bring your word home to our hearts. Open our eyes to see it more clearly and soften our hearts to apply it to live it out, and to most of all, rest in Christ, our Savior, our life, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, whenever I take my daughters in for their checkup with their pediatrician, their doctor always, uh, at the end, will tell me something or, or show me their growth chart, right? They'll, they'll measure how the girls are growing, what percentile they're in, if their growth is healthy or not. When I was growing up as a kid and I would go to the pediatrician, my growth chart often showed I had an abnormally large head, which was always fun to hear, right? Um, I think, but you can tell that's, you know, that makes sense, Um, right? So doctors with kids, pediatricians, they're they're concerned about these kids who come into their office who are full of life. They want to make sure that that life is is growing in a healthy way. They want to make sure that life is taking a, a healthy shape. And we see something similar happening in our text This morning, Peter is giving us somewhat of a a biblical growth chart because as we've seen the last few weeks, uh, in chapter 1, Peter starts his letter by have in the risen Christ. He described how God has caused those who have faith in Christ to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. He has written about how believers, we have an imperishable inheritance of eternal life through Jesus. And after declaring that then, what's going on is Peter is moving on to provide instructions for what this new life should look like. Like a a doctor of the church, he is showing us what shape this new life should take, how it should grow. Especially as these believers, as believers live as exiles in a world that is often hostile Uh, often antagonistic to our new life, to our living hope. We saw last week how the the, the future hope that this new life produces in us, it it creates a present 
holiness. In the preceding verses, Peter, he uh, commanded those who have experienced this new birth through faith in Christ. He commanded us to live in holiness, to walk in the fear of the Lord. And this morning, we'll continue on as we see Peter adds two more commands to the list as he commands believers to love one another and to long for spiritual nourishment. And as he does this, as he adds these commands, what we see is that in doing so, Peter, he instructs believers to live out our new life in Christ in genuine community and in growing maturity. He tells us to live out our new life in genuine community and growing maturity. And so we'll look at each of those this morning. First, genuine community, and then growing maturity. So look with me at the end of chapter 1 where we see Peter call us to genuine community and love. In verse verse 22, Peter, he commands his readers to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. See, as these believers, as they were living in a world that, uh, that treated them with hostility, Peter, he's urging his readers to treat one another with love. He's urging them to live out our new life in Christ by earnestly, sincerely loving one another from a pure heart. And this idea of, of earnestly loving one another, it carries the sense of, of, of loving one another genuinely, of loving one another without hypocrisy. That's literally what the, the Greek word means. It means without hypocrisy, love one another. This is, not a, this is not a false love. This is not a manipulative love that Peter is calling us to. This is not loving someone in order to get something from them. This is not loving someone to merely keep up appearances or to meet expectations. No, this is a genuine love. This is an earnest love, a love that purely binds itself to another person in unity, that seeks the good of the other first, regardless of their merit or their value in the eyes of the world. And this is important because as we live in a world in which love is often tainted with desires or wants, as we live in a world that is often filled with hostility and heartbreak instead of love. This kind of earnest, unhypocritical, self-giving love stands out. This kind of community that Peter is pointing us to will, will point people to a different way to live, a different hope, even a different life. And so Peter calls us to this love, but the question is, how do we do this? How do we live out this kind of earnest, genuine, unhypocritical, sincere love for one another? Well, Peter, he shows us how this kind of genuine community is possible because he accompanies his command to love with two reminders about the source of this love. Two reminders about the source of this love, two reasons this kind of love is possible. First, in verse 22, he prefaces his command to love with a reminder to his readers that they have, been pur- they have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Peter says that believers have purified their souls. And when he says that, what he means there, that word purified, it means that they have been set apart. They have been set apart. They have been purified. They have been consecrated to God. With the different sacrifices or elements that were given at the temple in the Old Testament that were set apart, that were devoted to God. Peter's saying, you uh, readers, you believers have been set apart. You yourselves have been purified, have been consecrated to be God's people. 
See, when writing to these churches here, Peter, he's not just writing to people who merely joined a social club or a religious institution. He's writing to people who have been purified, who have been consecrated, who have been set apart as God's people. And this is partly why Peter addresses his readers as exiles in the world, because they don't belong to the world. The world does not have dominion over them. They're not minions to the world, right? They are set apart. They belong to God, not to any earthly uh, ruler or kingdom or culture. They are God's people. And so then what is the source of this purification? What is it that makes these believers set apart for God? Is it their moral actions? Is it their religious observance? Is it their attendance at church? Their conformity to their particular tribe? Peter said they have purified their souls by your obedience to the truth. This is an interesting phrase because anytime we see that word obedience in Scripture, we naturally think of our own efforts. We think of the things that we do, the way we obey God's laws, the actions that we think might make us pure or make us acceptable by God. And so is that what Peter's saying here? Is he saying that it's by our own actions, our own works, that we purify ourselves, that we set ourselves apart? Well, I think when we look at this phrase in its literary context, when you remember how Peter has used this phrase already in the book and what it was connected to, we we actually get a better sense of what Peter is saying. Because back in verse 2, Peter, he identified his readers as elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Back in verse 2, Peter used this uh, word obedience again, obedience to Jesus Christ, sprinkling with his blood. He connected this obedience to the fact that believers are purified, not because of our works, not because of our sacrifices, but because of the sacrifice of Christ. Because Christ himself shed his blood to pay the price for our sins. And if we trust in him, then we ourselves are purified. We're cleansed from our sins. We're declared innocent before God, and that's not because of our own obedience, it's not because of our own effort, but because it's because of what Christ has done in his life, in his death, his resurrection. And so Peter has already made clear that our ultimate purification from sin, it comes through faith in Christ, it comes through what Christ has done for us. And so it wouldn't make sense for him to say then that believers are purified because of our obedience or because of our moral effort. What he's saying here is, I think, similar to what Paul says in the book of Romans, this in Romans 1.5, where Paul talks about this idea of the obedience of faith. This idea that when we've had this gospel preached to us, when uh, Peter's readers have had the truth of the gospel proclaimed to them, that Christ has come and died and shed his blood to purify us from our sins, to bring us back to God. When we hear this truth, the only uh, response that makes sense is to submit to it, to obey it by submitting to it in faith. And so when Peter is saying that they have purified themselves, that believers have purified themselves through our obedience to the truth, he's referencing the fact that his readers have placed their faith in Christ, that they have obeyed the word of the gospel that was preached by responding to it in faith. Because it is faith in Christ alone that purifies us. It is trust in his perfect finished work on the cross, in his death, his resurrection. That's what sets us apart. That's what consecrates us to God. This is what makes us clean before God and what makes us a peep, the people of God. And the purpose of this purity, it's not merely individualistic. Peter tells us that believers have been purified by faith for a sincere brotherly love. 
He's saying that through faith in Christ, believers, we are set apart into a new community, a community that is marked by sincere love for one another. It's important to see here that Peter's point is, is not that Christian, is, Peter's point here is that Christian community, it's not something that we ourselves create. It's not something that we pull together through our programs or our ministries. It's not something that we cause because we've been organized as a church for over 200 years and that's the basis of our community. And the source of our community is Christ himself. We are in this community because the second we placed our faith in Christ, we were united to all those who have also placed their faith in Christ. We are in this community because by faith we are in Christ. And so if we are in him, then we are part of this community. Whether it's your first Sunday or your 5,000th Sunday, if you, are trust in, if you have trusted in Christ, you are united with other believers here and also across the world. We are part of this genuine community in Christ. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer put it in his book, Life Together, he wrote, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this, whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily fellowship of years. Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. Is that what unites us as a church? Is that what keeps us together even when we disagree on, on little things, on secondary matters? Do we stay united as a church because we know that our true union, our true unity comes in Christ? Because we have been purified in Him, set apart in Him, knit together in Him from all the different places that we've come from, all the different stories that are represented here, all the different backgrounds, all of our different failures and, and gifts and struggles. We're united ultimately not because we look alike or talk alike or live in the same area or have the same uh, political beliefs or cultural preferences or root for the same sports teams, because some of us clearly don't root for the same sports teams in this church. I don't know if you noticed, right? But that's not what unites us. What unites us is that we belong to one another in and through Jesus Christ, because we have been purified. We have been set apart in him for a sincere brotherly love. That's what brings us together. And as we live out that community, we show the world the beauty of this new life that he offers, the beauty of this purification that he brings. The church is not a place where we have to create this community or conjure it up. The church is a place where we live it out. We live out the unity, the love we already have in Christ. We live it out in our relationships with one another. And so Peter, he instructs those who have already been purified, already been brought into this community, been set apart in Christ, been united in Christ to live it out, to live out this community by loving one another earnestly. He calls us to generously and selflessly give ourselves in love to one another because this is how Christ has loved us and because through his love we have been united. And so we live out our new life in him together. That's the great joy. That's the great privilege of getting to be in the church. Is we get to live out this unity, this love together. But that's the first reason. The second reason Peter says that we can live out this love, we can love one another, is he says that in verse 23, that we are to love one another since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 
And here, Peter, he's continuing this picture that he's been building of how believers have new life in Christ. We've been born again through faith in Christ. We've been given new birth in him, not through human seed, which is, which is perishable, but through an imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. Peter, he's saying that if we are in Christ, if we have trusted him in faith, then the source of this new life, the reason we've been born again, it's not uh, because of the perishable seed of human effort or achievement, because of human status or acclaim. No, he says we've been born again through the imperishable hope that's proclaimed to us in the word of God. The word of God, the Bible, which reveals to us the word of God made flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took on flesh and died and rose again to bring us imperishable life in himself. So again, he is the source of our life. He is the imperishable seed who brings us an imperishable hope, an imperishable life. And to highlight this, Peter, he contrasts the the difference between perishable human seed and the imperishable seed of God's word, and he does it by citing from the book of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40 verses, in verses 24 to 25. Specifically, he's quoting Isaiah 46 to 8, which is just one part of, of chapter Isaiah 40, which was a, a hugely important chapter in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 also seems to be a, a particularly important chapter to the apostle Peter. We see it in 1 Peter. We see it in the Gospel of Mark, which was heavily influenced by Peter's own witness. Because what's going on in Isaiah 40 is that after promising after prophesying that God's people are going to be exiled to Babylon, prophet Isaiah then, he turns to a message of hope in chapter 40, a hope even in the midst of exile. Isaiah declares in chapter 40, verse 1, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah 40, it's the start of a a promise of comfort to God's people, even as they live in exile. Promise that deliverance is going to come. And so as as Isaiah makes this promise to God's people in, in exile hundreds of years before Peter's day, it makes sense that Peter would have these words on his mind as he's writing to believers that he identifies as exiles in their day, who are exiles in a hostile world. And so he references Isaiah 40, 6 to 8, which uh, tells us how human flesh is like grass, how it's like the flower of the field, that no matter how beautiful it is, it's going to perish, it's going to fade away, it's here today and gone tomorrow. And Peter contrasts this, this finiteness, this fading of human flesh and earthly beauty, he contrasts it with the word of God, which is living and abiding, which will stand forever. This is important because when he cites these few verses from Isaiah 40, uh, the, the way that things worked in that culture, Peter knew that as his readers saw these few verses from Isaiah 40, that they would have the whole chapter in their heads, that they knew it well enough, they had read it enough times, they had heard it repeated over and over again, that when they heard these few verses, 6 to 8, they would be able to think of the rest of the chapter. And so what Peter is doing here by quoting Isaiah 40 is he's, he's writing to believers who are exiles in the world. He's reminding them of God's promise of comfort and deliverance even in exile. He's reminding them that even as they face hostile power structures, human institutions that are organized to persecute them, even though they face these, these enemies, these persecutors that seem inconquerable, 
that seem like they're going to last forever. He, he reminds them that they're just human structures, that they're here today and gone tomorrow, that they're fading. They're like the flowers of the field. He's reminding them, them this just by citing the Old Testament. He's reminding them that even the mightiest human power is going to fade away. It's perishable. But you know, it won't fade away. What is imperishable, what is living and abiding, it's the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord, the imperishable seed that, be, that brings believers an unfading new life. Even as we face seemingly unstoppable hostility or hardship in the world. This is the hope Peter is calling us to by citing Isaiah 40. He's reminding us that even in exile, even in hostility, even in hardship, our life is secure. Because it has been secured, it's been brought about not by the perishable seed of human power or achievement or security. Our new life has been brought about by the imperishable seed of God's word, of the gospel, of the living and abiding word of God. This new life has been brought about in the one who is himself the word of God. God made flesh in whom is life and that life is the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and will not overcome it. And so are we living out of this imperishable hope? Are we living this new life that is based on imperishable seed? Are we a people that has a resilient hope or resilient joy even as we face hostility and hardship? Because our life is secure. This word has been preached to us. In Christ, we have a living hope. We have an imperishable life, not because of anything we do, not because of what happens out in the world, but because of what Christ has secured for us and how that is revealed to us in God's word. And so what do we do with all this? How do we live out this life? How do we live out this hope? By loving one another, by letting the joy and the security of our living hope in Christ overflow unto other people around us in genuine self-giving love because if you ever really want to love somebody you, you need to be freed to do that if you're looking at the person you love as your ultimate source of hope your ultimate source of security or in the person they cannot find your ultimate hope or their ultimate security in you then it's hard to really love them in a genuine self-giving way when you already have all the love you need, when you already have the light you need in Christ, then you're free to truly love somebody without expectation, without pretense, without hypocrisy, because you don't really need them. Really, you're just trying to share this life, this love with them. It's overflowing out of you. And so if we've been set apart by faith, if we've been born again by this imperishable seed of God's word, then in Christ we can freely and joyfully and gratefully love one another earnestly in the midst of a heartbreaking, hostile, lonely world. We can live in the kind of genuine community that will seem impossible to the world because it is impossible on our own. It's only possible if we are united together in Christ. And so as we live out this genuine community in Christ, we can point others to the joy, the beauty, the wonder of this new life, this new community that's found in Christ alone. And so this new life, it leads to genuine community. 
But that new life, that genuine community, it also produces in us a growing maturity. We see this here in chapter 2, where Peter says that because this word has been preached, because Peter's readers have been set apart, have been born again through our imperishable hope in Christ, Peter then gives a second command. He commands his readers not only to love one another, but to, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. If you've ever been around a newborn baby, then you'll know that when they're hungry, they, they, make, they make it known, right? A newborn infant, if they're, they're hungry, they cry out for milk. Because newborns, for a significant you know, time in their life, for months at a time, they, the only thing that sustains them is milk. And so if they're hungry, they need it, and they cry out, and they long for it. They don't stop crying until they get it, because it's their nourishment. It's the source of life that sustains them. And in a similar way, Peter is telling believers that if we have been given a new birth in Christ, then we should similarly long for the true nourishment that will sustain us and help us grow. And Peter identifies the source of nourishment as pure spiritual milk pure spiritual milk. In order to make sense of what he's talking about here, this, this phrase, pure spiritual milk, it's helpful, I think, uh, to think a bit about the cultural context of, of Peter's day. Because as the commentator Karen Jobes points out, uh, she points out that, that nursing infants in Peter's day was a lot different than it is in our day today. Because today, some newborns are nursed directly by their moms, but others are given formula. We've, you know, we have this great thing, we have baby formula, but in Peter's day, that wasn't invented yet. Baby's formula, baby formula wasn't a thing. So if, if, my, if a mom was unable to, to nurse her baby, what she would do is the family would go out and they would hire a wet nurse. They would go, go out and hire another person to come and nurse their child. And there were some in that culture of Peter's day that believed that you had to be really, really careful in selecting a wet nurse for your child because there was a cultural superstition that the quality or the character of the person nursing your child would affect the character of the child themselves. That uh, the character of the person doing the nursing would be transferred to the character of the baby through the milk. Right? That was a superstition in, in Peter's day, that if you give your baby bad milk, they'll be a bad person. If you give your baby good milk, they'll be a good person. Right? Now, there's no evidence in the text that tells us that P Peter believed this superstition, but it does seem like culturally he's playing with this idea a little bit in verse 2 of, of good milk and bad milk, good that, milk that nourishes and sustains you and helps you grow properly versus milk that uh, doesn't cause you to grow properly. Because what Peter's doing when he talks about pure spiritual milk is he's making a distinction between pure spiritual milk, milk that is good for believers, milk that will develop in us holiness and Christ-likeness. He compares and contrasts that with earthly milk. Earthly milk that is imperishable, that will not sustain us, that will stunt our growth and lead us away from Christ-like character and love. So Peter is essentially asking us the question, he's saying, what kind of milk are you drinking? What are you, what is nourishing you? What are you living on as you live out your new life in Christ as exiles in the world? Are you trying to live on junk food? on bad milk, on the things of this world that are perishable, that are unsustaining? Or are you longing, crying out for the spiritual milk that will truly sustain you, that will truly help you, allow you to grow in Christ? And so as we live our lives in the world, what are we relying on to sustain us? 
We may have professed faith in Christ, but what are we relying on to strengthen, to grow that life, that faith? What is nourishing us? Is it our own efforts? Is it our comfort? Is it our security? Is it our success or our claim, our relationships or our possessions? Is it our entertainment or our media? The kind of news we consume or things we read and watch online? Are we looking to those things to nourish us and sustain us? Or are we looking to Christ himself? Because Peter's made it clear that we have been born again. The source of our life is the imperishable hope of God's word that reveals Christ to us. That reveals that it is Christ in Christ alone that we can be born again into this eternal life, this living hope. As believers, Christ is the source of our life. He is our living water. He is our bread of life. It is in Christ by faith that we first receive this new life. And it is in Christ by faith that we live out this new life. That we grow in this new life as believers. Christ, he's both the the way in and he's the way on, as it has been said. We grow in this new life in Christ by turning away from our sin, by turning away from all the imperishable false hopes, false nourishments of the world. And instead, we rest on him, rely on him day by day, moment by moment. This is why Peter then tells us to, to long for the spiritual nourishment by putting away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. He tells us to put away these sins because these sins are things that disrupt, that disrupt true, genuine community. They are also things that reflect a heart that is not growing in maturity. They reflect a heart that is trying to find its life, its nourishment in earthly things instead of in Christ. For example, if we're trying to find our life in other people, in human relationships, in affirmation or status or achievement, well, naturally then, will naturally be led into malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Because if we're trying to live off of what others do for us or live off of what others think about us or, or then when they don't give us what we want, when they don't think about us the way we want them to, it'll be easy to feel malice or anger towards other people or to be envious of what others have that we don't, that relationship, that house, that community, the kids, the, the success. It would be so easy then to use deceit, hypocrisy, or slander to gain from those other people what we want from them, what we think we need from them, to act in ways that are hypocritical, to act in ways that are malicious, to engage in things like gossip because we want to, we want to tear other people down to make ourselves feel better because we're not getting what we want from the people around us. And so let's tear them down because they're not meeting our needs. They're not nourishing us the way we want them to. Right? If we're trying to find our life in other people, then we will never find the true community we were made for. We'll never find the true rest, the true freedom that allows us to truly love other people because we're looking to them to be that life. And so we'll be left disappointed and broken and we'll break a lot of other people along the way. But if we long for true spiritual milk, if we look to Christ alone as our true nourishment, our true source of life, then we're freed from needing to find that life in other people. We're freed from trying to to find our life in what other people think about us, what they do for us, whether or not our kids are successful enough, whether or not our boss appreciates us enough, whether or not our spouse loves us enough. 
We find our, new, our true nourishment in Christ and we're actually free to love all of those people in, in a way that will completely change those relationships, change those dynamics, and not just point them to us, but point them ultimately to Christ. We'll be freed from these things that disrupt community. Instead, we can freely love and serve others out of the love that we ourselves are living on in Christ. And so then this will help us to grow in Christ. This is the second uh, purpose Peter gives here for why we should long for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See here Peter, he's reminding his readers they've already tasted the goodness of God. They've already tasted the salvation, the life that Christ brings. And he says, if you've tasted it already, keep going back to that well. Keep living it, right? If you have a food that you really like, if you have a food that you, 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 know, you love and you can't get enough of, it's so easy to just keep going back, right? My wife has to hide candy and Reese's and Kit Kats from me because I'll just keep going back to that well, right? If I know where it is in the house, I'll just keep eating. I can't help myself. Is that our approach to Christ? Are we so nourished by him? So have we tasted his goodness so fully that we just want to keep coming back? That we want to keep coming back to this well because this is where our life comes from. It is by feasting on Christ, being nourished on Christ, that we grow up into salvation. So are we chasing that nourishment? Are we chasing the, the junk food of the world? Have we tasted that the Lord is good? And has that taste given us, led us into a life of wanting to dine and grow in Christ? Peter starts this. He reminds his readers that they've already tasted the goodness of Christ, he asked them to consider whether they've really tasted it, because that's what makes the difference. You can't grow in the Christian life, you can't grow as a follower of Christ if you don't know Christ. If you don't have this life, if you haven't tasted that he is good, then you'll never long for this true nourishment. But if you have tasted the goodness of this life in Christ, the goodness of the salvation that he brings, then you'll know that this goodness, this life, it's not just a one-time drink that refreshed us at one point years ago. No, the goodness of Christ, the life he brings, it's an ongoing stream that will sustain us into eternity. And so Peter points us to this truth, and in doing so, he once again, he points us to the Old Testament. Because when he uses this phrase, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, what he's doing is he's alluding back to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, 8 to 10, which we read at the start of the service, in which David writes, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, David is writing this after he's been delivered from Abimelech. He's been delivered um, from being destroyed, and he's rejoicing in how God has delivered him. And what does he say? He says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer once in hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David had been delivered by God already, and so he is rejoicing in the goodness of God that he has tasted and recognizing that God's supply is all that he needs. That those who seek the Lord lack no good thing because in him is nourishment that will never be lacking. In him is a well that will never run dry that can sustain us in the midst of hardship and hostility, even in the midst of heartbreak and disappointment that will carry us through to eternity. So what is sustaining you as you seek to live, out, to live out this new life in Christ, to grow in Him? Are you relying on your own efforts? 
on the affirmation of others, on the accumulation of possessions, are distractions. Are you looking to the word of God? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself every day, remembering that faith in Christ is not just what brings us into this life. Faith in Christ is how we live and grow in this life. Are you coming back to this well, the stream of living water? Because growing maturity in Christ, it happens day by day, moment by moment, as we stake all our hope again and again, all our security, our identity on Christ alone, on the new life that he has brought us, on the imperishable life that he alone provides in the midst of a perishing, heartbreaking world. So have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you come by faith to know this imperishable hope, this new life? Or are you still looking to the perishable things of this world to save you and sustain you? If you have tasted this goodness, what does your growth chart look like? Are you growing in genuine community and growing maturity? Are we living these things out together as a church family with joy, with love, with humility? As Ray Ortland puts it in his book, The Gospel, he says, what is a church? A church is a body of believers in Jesus, together drawing their life from him in regular, practical, organized ways that accelerate their progress for him. It involves stepping into a kind of community unlike anything we've experienced, where we happily live together on a love we can't create. And I love that last line there, because as we seek to make progress in these things, to live our life together in genuine community, in growing maturity, our hope, our prayer is may we be a church that happily lives together on a love we can't create. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we praise you for this new birth, this new life that is available in Christ. That in him we can taste and see that you are good, that you are abundantly good, you are graciously good, you are shockingly good to those who have sinned against you, who have rebelled against you. Lord, so let this goodness that we have tasted in Christ propel us into a life of genuine community and growing maturity. Help us to love one another in a way that reflects to the world your love and your goodness. Help us grow in such a way that people can't explain how we live, how we conduct ourselves, how we treat others apart from the truth of the gospel. Lord, make this real in our midst. Make us a people who love you and and show that by loving one another. And let that love overflow out into a lost and dying, a a perishing and hopeless world. Lord, work through us to reflect to those who don't yet know you the imperishable hope that we have in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together in response.